I want to dedicate this project to those listening who are struggling in their lives. Maybe your struggle comes from within, or maybe it stems from the hands of another. Whatever the case may be, whatever obstacles you are currently facing in life, know that they can indeed be conquered. And just because the present situation is not ideal, it doesn't mean that the future can't be bright. Simply do your best with the current moment and then move on to the next. Thanks for listening, be well, and go Niners. The following program contains views that are not necessarily those of the National Football League or the San Francisco 49ers. The ideas and opinions presented belong solely to the individuals that provide them. Five yards. Just five yards away. On February 3rd, 2013, with two minutes and 52 seconds remaining in Super Bowl 47, San Francisco 49ers running back Frank Gore sets his feet at the 50-yard line of the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. He stands directly behind quarterback Colin Kaepernick in the pistol formation, with fullback Bruce Miller to his right and tight end Delaney Walker to his left. The Baltimore Ravens lead the 49ers 34-29. San Francisco needs only a touchdown to win the game. Kaepernick in the pistol now as Walker motions into the backfield. Inside handoff and Gore has a hole. Look out, Gore is past the first wave. Gore inside the 20, Gore to the 10, and Gore is finally shoved out of bounds by LRB at the Baltimore seven yard line. It's now first and goal for San Francisco after Gore's 33 yard run. The 49ers sixth Super Bowl championship lies just 25 feet away. A 33-yard gain by Frank Gore, and the San Francisco 49ers are knocking on the door with 2.39 left to play in Super Bowl 47. If you're a fan of the National Football League, you may already know how this story ends. If you're a fan of the San Francisco 49ers, you've probably memorized every remaining detail. Four plays followed. One two-yard run up the middle by running back LaMichael James, three incomplete passes to the right to receiver Michael Crabtree, and a timeout on third down by head coach Jim Harbaugh. Fourth and goal now, and it all comes down to this. Will the Ravens take a stand, or will the Niners take the lead? For a stadium that lacked electricity for 35 minutes, there's no shortage of it now. This is everything these young men on the field have worked their entire professional lives for. A minute 50 to play, fourth and goal at the five. The snap, Kaepernick, under pressure, lost it in the air, and it's incomplete. No flags on the play, Jim Harbaugh and the Niners are screaming for a holding call in the near corner, but they're not gonna get it. With the Lombardi Trophy hanging in the balance, the 49ers' hopes of capturing a sixth Super Bowl championship fell short that evening, with Colin Kaepernick's final pass sailing two feet too high for the outstretched arms of Michael Crabtree. Kaepernick's spiral, unceremoniously falling to the earth, hitting the white outline of the end zone and bouncing out of sight. And the 49ers turn it over on downs. The Ravens brought pressure up the middle and Kaepernick had to get rid of it quick. He tried to hook up with Michael Crabtree with Jimmy Smith in coverage, but the pass was too long. There was a lot of contact in the end zone, but very hard to throw a flag in this situation with the Super Bowl on the line. Absolute heartbreak for the San Francisco 49ers here in New Orleans. Cries for penalty flags against the Ravens by 49ers players, coaches, and fans alike would be met with silence by the game's officiating crew. Possession of the ball returned to the Ravens, and the 1 minute and 47 seconds remaining on the game clock expired soon after. 
Super Bowl 47 came to a close and the Baltimore Ravens were world champions. Because on four plays, the San Francisco 49ers failed to gain just five yards. Soldier, keep on marching on. Head down till the work is done. Waiting on that morning sun. Soldier, keep on marching on. What my thoughts are now, I mean, we, we came up five yards short. Certainly, knowing how it ended up, how it finished, that we didn't get the ball in, yeah, I would have liked to have tried a different play call. That's the way I always feel. If you do something that doesn't work, would have liked to have done something different. At least tried it. But you can't. Since losing Super Bowl 47, fortune has not shown bright upon the San Francisco 49ers, on or off the football field. As of this recording, in June of 2018, only two players remain from the team's 2012 Super Bowl roster. Three head coaches have been fired in three consecutive seasons, along with the organization's long-tenured general manager, Trent Baalke. Since the release of head coach Jim Harbaugh following the 2014 season, the 49ers have only won 13 games and lost 35. And despite opening a new stadium in the city of Santa Clara, half of the building's new seats are often empty on game days, with complaints from fans of hot weather, expensive parking, and lousy football. How quick the mighty have fallen. It's just kind of funny. In four years, we thought the DeBartolo family could control the electricity in New Orleans, and now we could barely beat a crappy team. If level of play was different, it would be more exciting, and it's become exciting in the last month. But prior to that, till they got Garoppolo, you could have your pick of seats for 15 bucks. Kind of the way it goes with a team that's been experiencing losses. We're looking forward to a return to the greatness that was the Niners organization. Feelings of frustration and disappointment are not uncommon to hear from 49er fans today. Often referred to as the faithful, loyal fans of the red and gold have long grown weary of their team's poor play on the field and its lack of strong leadership off it. Since 2003, Bay Area football fans have watched the 49ers finish the regular season with a winning record only three times. The organization has also hired seven different head coaches during that same time span. As a consequence, the product on the field has paled in comparison to its counterpart of the past, a franchise once known for its offensive innovation and league-wide dominance now sits at the bottom of the standings. The glory days of the San Francisco 49ers, pioneered by football legends like Bill Walsh, Joe Montana, Dwight Clark, Steve Young, and Jerry Rice, are now nothing but distant memories to Bay Area football fans, like old still photographs saved from a past era. And while there is new optimism that recent management changes, paired with a new coaching staff and quarterback, will restore hope to 49er fans in the Bay Area, it's nearly impossible not to look back and wonder, what happened? How did a select group of young men rise from NFL irrelevance only to play in the NFC Championship game for three consecutive years? And how did that same franchise stand just five yards away from winning their sixth Super Bowl title, only to return to irrelevance less than two years later? And what lies ahead for this storied franchise in the hands of new and seemingly capable leaders? This project aims to tell that story, to answer all of the remaining questions, and hopefully provide closure for fans still wondering what happened to one of professional football's greatest franchises. The whole story, from beginning to end, from 2004 to today. 
all of the wins and losses, the facts and the rumors, the success and the controversy. My name is Nicholas Sheldon. I was born in the San Francisco Bay Area and have followed the 49ers my entire life. I'm honored to have the opportunity to tell you this story. Thank you for listening, and I promise to make good use of your time. This is Document 49, the rise, fall, and rebirth of the San Francisco 49ers. The Prologue, Part 1, A Damaged Dynasty. The San Francisco 49ers. Hearing those words spoken aloud carries weight for millions of people around the world. It sparks emotions, gets the heart and mind racing, elicits joy and excitement. But when you hear those words today, the San Francisco 49ers, what first comes to mind? What's the first image that immediately pops into your head? If one were to guess, odds are good that you're looking into the past, the distant past even. You tell me, is 30 years ago considered the distant past? Semantics aside, it's a safe bet that right now you're thinking about number 16 or number 80, or maybe number eight, or maybe you're more of a defensive guy or girl, like number 42 perhaps? Do you remember how good number 87's hands were? Of course, this is natural. Every sports fan on the planet is a sucker for that jolt of nostalgia. It's why 49er fans immediately perk up when they hear the names Walsh and DiBartolo, Montana and Clark, Young and Rice. The list is virtually endless. Knowing the storied history of the San Francisco 49ers is simply a part of being a Bay Area citizen. It's the stuff of legend for any man, woman, or child that has a red and gold t-shirt hanging in their closet. Because from 1981 to 1998, the San Francisco 49ers were by and far the most successful franchise in the National Football League, with a record of 207 wins and 72 losses in 18 seasons. That includes 16 playoff appearances in 19 years and five Super Bowl championships. This was unprecedented dominance in the NFL's modern era. At the time, only the Pittsburgh Steelers of the 1970s rivaled these achievements. Because under the command of head coach Bill Walsh and later George Seifert, the 49ers were kings of professional football, and the rest of the NFL could only try their best to keep pace with the high-flying and hard-hitting team by the Bay. But everyone knows that story. The golden era, the five rings, the catch, Joe Cool and John Candy, Lot's severed pinky, Young's run against the Vikings, Rice breaking every NFL record known to man, the private planes with the steak and lobster dinners, courtesy of Mr. DeBartolo. Again, it's the stuff of legend. Documentaries have been produced, books have been written, and Joe Montana even made a couple of video games back in the early 90s. For diehard Niner fans, these NFL Bible stories remain essential parts of the 49ers Old Testament, complete with Bill Walsh taking command of the Red Sea and leading his chosen into the Promised Land. So that begs the question, is that it? Is that all that's worth remembering? If the 49ers Old Testament ends with the Book of Mariucci, with Steve Young connecting with Terrell Owens for the catch two in the 1998 NFC wildcard game, then what follows? That's the question this project aims to answer. 
provide fans of the San Francisco 49ers with their New Testament to investigate and tell the stories of a more obscure era in 49ers football. The highs, the lows, and all the smaller stories in between during a strange and often confusing time in Camelot. Not all of these New Testament tales of 49ers past have happy endings, but I believe they deserve to be remembered. The tales need to be told. The memories properly preserved, without bias or an agenda. So put on your favorite red and gold t-shirt and make yourself comfortable. The New Testament has arrived. Welcome to Document 49, the rise, fall, and rebirth of the San Francisco 49ers. Home. The English dictionary tells us that a home is a house, apartment, or other shelter, a residence of a person, family, or household. It also tells us it's the place where one's domestic affections are centered. Or, in other words, a home is both a physical space and an idea. It's the place one resides after a long day of work. A home also provides protection from the elements a safe haven from the dangers of the outside world. It seems odd, then, that a home can also exist simply as an idea, given that it has such a concrete function. That begs the question, can home exist anywhere? The answer, of course, resides within the individual. Where we choose to make our home is just that, a choice. But whether or not it feels like home is another story. Home. It's Christmas Eve in Santa Clara, California, around 9.30 a.m. A brisk 52-degree morning, overcast, what many would call good football weather. I've just arrived at Levi Stadium, where today... The 4-10 San Francisco 49ers are scheduled to face the 10-4 Jacksonville Jaguars. Kickoff is set for 1.05 p.m. Reports on the AM radio tell me a decent crowd is expected to attend today, that despite the 49ers losing record and the approaching Christmas holiday. It's still early. Traffic is light exiting the 101 freeway, yet I remain flanked by a number of cars and trucks donning 49er bumper stickers and red and gold flags flying proudly in the wind. Today's game will feature two franchises with opposite records, but not necessarily moving in opposite directions. Armed with the NFL's best defense, the Jaguars are fresh off a 45-7 home field drubbing of their division rivals, the Houston Texans. With the victory, Jacksonville clinched their first playoff berth since 2007 a monumental feat for a franchise all too familiar with living at the bottom of the standings. A win today over the 49ers would grant the Jags with an AFC South Division Championship for the first time in franchise history. In contrast, the 49ers will not be participants in this year's playoffs, but a different kind of excitement is brewing for the red and gold nonetheless. After losing nine of their first 10 games of the season under new head coach Kyle Shanahan, the Niners are now riding a three-game winning streak thanks in part to the talents of their new quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. It's your third start, first time you've been able to start three games in a row in the NFL. How much fun are you having? Uh, it, it's fun. It is very fun. Football, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a little kid's game that grown men get to play, and uh, 
just privileged to get to do that every day. There was a lot of excitement in the stadium today. The crowd was on fire. I mean, I've never heard them that loud in my short time here, so I thought they did a phenomenal job for us. On Halloween of 2017, the 49ers agreed to send a second-round draft pick to the New England Patriots in exchange for their new quarterback. It was a shrewd transaction executed by new 49ers general manager John Lynch, earning high praise from both the local and national sports media. And since starting Garoppolo in Week 13, the 49ers remain undefeated, though the playoff-bound Jaguars present a tall task for a young team still finding its identity. I've parked my car this morning in one of the dirt lots, where tailgating is permitted about 500 yards across the street from the new stadium. The uneven ground brings back memories of the lots at Candlestick Park, where fans congregated prior to 49er games for over 40 years. Yet these perimeter lots at Levi's Stadium feel much cleaner than their Candlestick brethren, and definitely safer. My chosen lot is situated in the middle of an office park, surrounded by endless rows of shiny glass buildings, while police officers on bicycles quietly patrol the roads. I've traveled to Santa Clara today to speak directly with the 49er faithful, to get their unfiltered opinions on the past 15 years of 49ers football and their hopes for the future of the franchise. The mood in the Bay Area surrounding the Niners has generally improved since the team added Garoppolo in October, but pessimism and resentment seem to linger with many as I begin to make my way through the dirt parking lot. Confusion and uncertainty have sadly become all too familiar for this fan base in recent years, mostly due to the frequent turnover at head coach and on the roster as well. With that in mind, I hope to gain some greater context today regarding the recent history of the franchise and how the 49er fan experience has changed since the end of the golden era. With that said, it's game day, and despite the Jaguars being four-point favorites, the 49ers faithful remain excited for what's to come this afternoon. Where you're from and how long have you been a fan of 49ers? Sacramento. Season ticket holders for, uh, I'm going to say, 10 years. Dating back into the stick, went to every home game in the 80s and 90s. And do you guys drive here for every game? Every game. From San Jose, California. How long have you been a Niner fan? I think it was required from when I was born, because <laughs> we always watch the Niners, so. I'm from Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada, and I've been a 49er fan since I can't remember. That's a long ago. I'm from Reno, Nevada, and I have been a Niner fan my whole life. I'm from the city. You know, I've been a 49er fan since I was a little boy. Uh, where I'm from, San Carlos, in the Bay Area, um, as long as I can remember, as long as I can walk. I'm from Sacramento. I've been a fan since I was born. To help fill in the blanks for Document 49's prologue and my trip to Levi Stadium, I've enlisted the help of three very intelligent and plugged-in individuals that I've always admired from afar. My name is Oscar Aparicio. I was born and raised in Mountain View in the South Bay of the Bay Area. I became a Niner fan in 1989 when I saw Joe Montana hit John Taylor in the back of the end zone for the Super Bowl winning touchdown. I'm David Newman. I basically have been a 49ers fan since the womb. I was propped up in front of the TV watching 49ers games. I was trying to recite player names from as early as I could speak. Every week, Oscar and David combine their broadcasting powers to create the Better Rivals podcast, which in my opinion is the most thorough and informative weekly 49ers podcast on the internet. Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, it is a win Wednesday. Apparently, people love to make Jimmy Garoppolo overtly sexual in my mentions. I mean, as it should be. I think that the winner is Jimmy G-Spot. <laughs> like, why? Like, why? Why? 
Why not? It's a thing. Why it's, not? It's totally a thing. Produced for NinersNation.com and available on iTunes, Oscar and David work tirelessly to not only cover news about the team, but to also help their listeners learn the finer X's and O's of 49ers football. Trust that when Oscar and David are on the mic, you're almost guaranteed to learn something new about the red and gold. I used to go to this Burger King off of El Camino Real, and they had a big mural of John Taylor jumping up and kind of putting the ball up in the air. And my mom went out and got me a knockoff Joe Montana t-shirt jersey, and I've been in love ever since. My name is Jennifer Lee Chan. I have been a 49er fan for as long as I can remember. It stems from both my grandfathers being huge 49ers fans, and so I didn't really have a choice in the matter. I was a football fan since I was probably four or five. It was just kind of one of those things that I was able to do with my dad, sitting on the carpet or on the couch weekend mornings watching football was one of my favorite memories. Leading a new generation of NFL beat writers, Jennifer Lee Chan covers the 49ers for NinersNation.com and is a must-follow on social media for any faithful 49er fan. I should explain a bit more about who I am as well. As you know, my name is Nicholas Sheldon. I'm 36, and I was born and raised in Belmont, California, which for the unfamiliar, it's just a city over from Tom Brady's hometown of San Mateo. I've been a fan of the 49ers my entire life, with my earliest Niner memory also being John Taylor's game-winning touchdown in Super Bowl XXIII. I specifically remember running around the house asking my parents why Jerry Rice hadn't scored the final touchdown. Please forgive me, I was seven years old. For 26 years, my father owned a local tool store on the El Camino Real called Dennis's Discount Depot, which acted as a regular sponsor for the 49ers postgame show on KGO Radio in the mid-90s. We were also season ticket holders for a few years during that time. Because of this, I was fortunate enough to see some of the Steve and Jerry years up close and in person. I now live in Los Angeles and work freelance in television as a producer and editor, mostly in sports. I've done past work with many different companies, big and small, most notably the NFL Network and Tennis Channel. Document 49 is a major passion project of mine, a story I've wanted to tell for many years now, and I'm thankful you have provided me the opportunity to share it with you today. I'd like to stress up front that this project is not about me. This is the most you will hear me speak about myself for the remainder of the program. The voices you will hear on this and future episodes of Document 49 be comprised of former 49ers players, coaches, local media members, and fans. Any contributions I make to Document 49 will come from past reports on the team that are both carefully researched and clearly sourced for your reference. Where you're from, how long have you been a 49er fan? You know, I grew up in San Francisco, Bayview Hunters Point area, and I was working at Candlestick at the age of about 15 and a half, 16, so... I got to watch the 49ers and Giants play. Gone through the hard times, good times, four Super Bowls with Joe Montana. The Cats, Dwight Clark, 1981, took them to their first Super Bowl. One thing is absolutely certain this morning at Levi's Stadium, fans still hold the golden era of 49ers football close to their hearts. It is indeed a common bond that unites people of the Bay Area, regardless of age, race, or social status. In a time where Americans are easily divided by a variety of political and social issues, Watching Bay Area football fans come together to support the 49ers this morning is a welcome sight. Historically, the team has helped get the city of San Francisco and the Bay Area in general out of some really dark times. You look at the murder of Mayor Moscone, the the city was looking for some kind of positivity, and the 49ers were it in the 80s. 
The Niners are definitely an integral part of Bay Area history. They were the premier team of that time. Eddie DiBartolo grew that fan base, was loyal to the ticket holders, to anyone who worked for him. He just saw it as a giant family. And I think that's the culture of the team and its relation to the Bay Area. It's just, it was always one big family. No, yeah, I'll just say as a kid, you know, dad throwing the jersey on me as a young age, Jerry Rice. And then as a baby, I got uh, pictures with Bill Walsh and all the 49ers uh, players. So, I mean, it's in the blood, man. For a lot of us that kind of grew up watching them, it's a bit <clears throat> of nostalgia, too, because we had such a good history. We all remember watching all the Super Bowls and stuff and having good teams that you rooted for. So Eddie D was one of the greatest ever. You know, he did his thing for a long time. And, you know, I imagine he wouldn't have gave up the team if he didn't get caught in what he got involved in. So when the team is doing well, it really creates a bond between the people in the community that is not only the Bay Area, but the longer community of maybe we'll call them Bay Area expats because the diaspora of Niner fans goes everywhere. That's what it means to the people in the Bay Area. It's a fiber that connects when sometimes things seem or feel like they're not going great and, and it lets people be happy together. We're all 90s babies, like born in 1990. So that was when the Niners were in their prime and then just growing up, we got like the back end years of Jeff Garcia and Terrell Owens and then most of like our adult life, it's been failure. <laughs> so like the Super Bowl year and the Harbaugh years, that was a highlight. And then most of the time it's been failure. So every time they actually do start winning, it's always, I think, a little bit more special for everyone because we don't have uh, the winning tradition in our, our generation as much as our parents. The winning tradition has indeed been absent from San Francisco, or I suppose I could say Santa Clara, since the 49ers left Candlestick Park and moved to Levi's Stadium in the summer of 2014. With one quick cut of the ribbon, Santa Clara celebrated the end of a long journey this afternoon as the city is now the official home of the San Francisco 49ers. Today was opening day for Levi Stadium, a 2 million square foot, 68,000 seat facility costing a grand total of $1.2 billion to erect. The building promises a high-tech and innovative experience for 49er fans, including easy access Wi-Fi and mobile apps to help with parking, security concerns, and ordering meals that can be delivered directly to your seat. The facility also boasts 49 solar panels, which means for every 49ers home game, the stadium will produce all its own energy. The Levi Strauss Corporation is reportedly paying $220 million to the 49ers for naming rights on the building, a contract that will keep the Gene Makers brand on the stadium through 2034. 49ers owner and CEO Jed York was personally on hand for the festivities, as well as head coach Jim Harbaugh and NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Thus far, the stadium's inaugural season was its best, an 8-8 eight eight campaign led by former head coach Jim Harbaugh who agreed to mutually part ways with the 49ers at the conclusion of the 2014 season. In talking with fans this morning, it is clear that Levi's Stadium still has some big shoes to fill when it comes to matching the old-school comforts of Candlestick Park. Since the 49ers moved to Levi's Stadium, what's been your opinion on the experience here and on the team in general since they left Candlestick? Well, I really like Candlestick, to tell you the truth. I mean, that, that stadium was just, the, the aura there, it was always packed. This place here... It's going to take a while to get the fan base back, what it should be until they start winning more. They've had bad teams at Candlestick, but you go, this is where Montana, Rice, Ronnie Lott played, Roger Craig. They don't have any of that here. So the original plan was to build a stadium where Candlestick was, revitalize that area, and stay in South San Francisco. Ultimately, they took the plans for the stadium that was going to be where Candlestick was and just kind of plopped it down in Santa Clara. 
when I look at old games at Candlestick, and when I look at the feel and having the sea level rise and having it be super muddy and the fog coming in, there is, I think, a mystique there that's missing with Santa Clara. And you think about Candlestick and it's a lot of the memories, right? A lot of the great moments that have happened there. Not having that history is the big part of it right now. And they've been terrible since they moved. We'll discuss more details behind the development and construction of Levi's Stadium on a future episode of Document 49. Today, I'm more interested in learning why fans still long for the cold winds and foul-smelling corridors of Candlestick Park, and why Levi Stadium isn't living up to its early promise. I hate it. I don't like it. Why, why is that? Uh, first of all, they didn't do a good job on getting traffic in and out of here. Fans, you know, the fan base has changed. I mean, the stick, there was a lot more excitement, more hype. They didn't really change anything. The parking was bad there, the parking is bad here. So it's kind of like you're fighting the same issue. In terms of the stadium, the stadium's nice. It's very fitting to Silicon Valley, but I think that they forgot about the football aspect of it. It doesn't seem like a football stadium, to be honest. In the early stages of its design, Levi's Stadium was described by architects as Silicon Valley meets Notre Dame football. However, the boys of the Better Rivals podcast receive the 49er CEO Jed York's admiration of Silicon Valley may have outweighed his love for the Fighting Irish in regards to the stadium's overall design. York, of course, received his bachelor's degree from the University of Notre Dame in 2003. I do think there was a little bit of, we'll call it, misaligned priorities when they built the stadium. When they set out to build Levi's, they set out to build a technical marvel and not necessarily a football stadium. The building is LEED certified, which is awesome. That's great for the environment. You can order food with an app. It's got Wi-Fi everywhere. It's got the Yahoo Fantasy Football area. It's got a restaurant that you can rent out for weddings, and it's really big and nice. None of that is really all that important for football. Like, you don't go to stadiums for that. It definitely feels like Jed York wanted to be, like, the startup of the NFL and get a lot of tech things in there that were fancy. And, yeah, like you said, not really something that lends itself to a good football-watching experience. Candlestick was a football field attached to an outhouse. This thing is a cash machine with a football field attached. In this stadium, it's a very expensive hobby. <laughs> My $94 ticket at Candlestick costs 220 here. But the people sitting next to me, they get theirs on StubHub between 25 and 45 bucks. So you're paying Cabernet prices for a, a Miller Lite team. That hurts. What you take away from Candlestick is the passion, the energy that comes with it. It's no longer a place to be like feared, right? You come in, it's, it's kind of like a neutral ground. So for the football aspect, it sucks. Jennifer Lee Chan attends all of the 49ers home games as a beat writer for NinersNation.com. Her most notable observation during the stadium's inaugural season? The lack of history, or acknowledging history anyway. One of the big mistakes that they made before this season was the inside of the stadium being completely sterile of 49ers. The only thing that tells you that it's a 49ers game outside of the temporary banners and whatnot is one small line below the press box. It says five times Super Bowl champs. That's it. You're in the stadium. There is not one retired jersey. There is not anything that speaks of Bill Walsh, Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, Steve Young. Now, when you walk through the halls or you go into any of the lounges, there's tons of old pictures of 49ers. There's pictures of Patrick Willis. There's pictures of Joe Montana. I mean, all of the 49ers legends are very well represented, but the rest of it is void of anything that indicates you're in the 49ers stadium. Now, on the contrary, when you go to Minnesota Stadium, you know you're in the Viking Stadium. The whole thing is purple. There's Vikings gear everywhere. There's the horn. There's the drum. The whole thing is shaped as a ship. 
Levi's is kind of plain and kind of bland. Levi's Stadium is a great venue. However, it has become more of like a wine and cheese party. I remember when I first came here the first year, it was interesting because a lot of the fans that we come to know, like the guy with the banjo or, you know, a lot of the fans that are super fans, they weren't there the first year. You know, it was almost like they didn't even accommodate for them. So I felt really different, you know, and it's kind of taken a while and it's slowly getting that vibe back where it was like Candlestick. Candlestick was just special. You know, it rocked every time you went in there. It got loud. Everybody talked to each other. Everybody was into the game. A lot of it here is kind of a little more mellow crowd, a little more ritzy, rich crowd. It goes back to Jed wanting to have his own era with the 49ers. He did not want to have Eddie's legacy all over the building. He wanted to have his own legacy, and it looked like at the time when they built it that Harbaugh was going to be the key to having his own legacy. He built that stadium really because Harbaugh gained all that momentum. That was part of the reasoning that they didn't want to have 49ers stuff all over the inside of the stadium. We'd gone to the Super Bowl. I really felt like we were set up to have a good run of sustained success. So because of that, I bought season tickets. I wanted to be able to say, hey, look, I've been a fan since Levi's first opened, and we're going to build new traditions here. We're going to win championships in this state-of-the-art stadium. So I buy these tickets, and the team doesn't have a great inaugural season, one. Two, then they fire Harbaugh, and now after that season's over, they want me to pay $5,000, $6,000 for season tickets for a team that's in turmoil that stinks. One thing that's great with John Lynch coming in, he wants to make sure that all the players are welcome. He wants to embrace the history because you have to. And I think Jed didn't want to do that. And John Lynch, I think he saw that he needed help to get the fan base back behind the team. You know, I'm looking at former players out here. I see Keena Turner, I see Paris, I believe that's Eric Wright, uh, Guy McIntyre, Jesse Sapolo, Steve Bono. Those guys created the standard that we're striving for. I've reached out to a lot of these guys and let them know that not only are they welcome, we really want these guys around because that's what we're aspiring to be. Now there's banners all over, there's retired jerseys, there's gonna be a ring of honor. They honored Dwight Clark this year. It feels like you're in a 49er stadium now, whereas the previous years at Levi's, you could have been anywhere. With new leadership installed in general manager John Lynch and head coach Kyle Shanahan, along with changes to the building itself, a growing sense of optimism has permeated the faithful's frustration with Levi Stadium. Yet it remains clear that a few red and gold banners won't solve all of this facility's growing list of problems. They definitely need to do some other improvements on the stadium for the shade and stuff. That needs to happen. Your preseason games are in August. It's hot. And you have it right in the sun. The sun's beating down on you. Well, the first half of the season, the stadium is 35, 40 degrees hotter than Candlestick. You don't really get into football weather until, like, November. Prior to that, it's all beach weather. And if you show up without a shade cover or a hat, you're toast. So there's one side of the stadium that is opposite the press box that is in the sun for the entire game if it's a 1 p.m. game. I sat in those seats for a high school all-star game and I lasted in that seat about 15 minutes. It is blazingly hot. I would say all of the preseason, September and maybe October, that whole middle section from the 40 to the 40, it is so hot for them. And those people pay $80,000 a seat for their SBLs. They're not going to sit there. They're going to go up into the lounge where it's air conditioned. You can drink wine, the food's there. It's too much heat for anyone to sit there for three and a half hours in the blazing sun. And of course, the most widespread complaint by far about the 49ers new home 
the incredibly steep financial commitment for season ticket holders, who have been continuing to pay top dollar to watch subpar football for the past three years. The folks that used to get the biggest buzz going for the Niners were in the 40s and they were legacy ticket owners and that was all supplanted by corporate ownership because the prices went so high. When you gotta pay 450 to $600 for a seat, you end up with a turnover in the fan base. And if the tickets are being given away as spiffs to out of town visitors by corporations, then you don't really have Niners fans sitting in the Niner preferred seats. Moving to Levi was a very detrimental move. Everything's been more gentrified. You know, it's only the rich that are coming in right now. If people didn't already hate the owners, it might have gone more smoothly. It's overpriced and it's not really about the fans. It was just kind of the cherry on top of the Sunday. Here are your fans that are trusting you to give us a good product and you just took our money and ran. It took a while to get over that. I was really angry at the team for a good long time. Everything that people have against the stadium has to do with the fact that the team has not performed well. If there's not a good product on the field, and I know this because we're season ticket holders, we've been to a bunch of crappy games, I find everything else to complain about because the game sucks. <laughs> and it's depressing to go, you're not excited to go to a game. You're like, great, we're gonna go there, Like, we have to go, we can't sell our tickets, we're gonna have to spend money. Like, it's, you're not excited, you're not in a good, excited, fun mood that it's supposed to be. You're probably hearing a lot of frustration it's very expensive to come here. You invest a lot of money, a lot of time. Like, we're from Sacramento. This is like a 12-hour day. When you win, it's wonderful. When you lose, it, it's a long drive home and it, and it sucks. And maybe that's the most important thing that's been missing from Levi Stadium, the winning tradition. Hope remains amongst these fans that the 49ers will soon create a new kind of legacy in this building. And the game day experience will then greatly improve for the 49ers faithful. That will change if the Niners do have sustained success in this new building. If this is something where the team is kind of starting to turn a corner and we start to see a team that's contending year in and year out, and we start to get some of those big moments that happen, right? I think it's kind of the same thing, you know, that people talk about in the locker room a lot. Winning cures a lot of things. Candlestick was a dump and San Francisco didn't want to have them there. So I was perfectly fine because this is closer for me. Everyone has fond memories, but they have fond memories of the games that were played there. The stadium was crappy, but it was what was on the field that made it special. Winning is the best deodorant. When the team starts to win, you won't worry about the $15 cocktail. You won't worry about the $40 parking. The tension and anxiety level will come down and people will enjoy their game day experience. I've been to Candlestick. I mean, I liked it there too, but I feel like here, just like the new generation, you know, hopefully it comes out like another legendary field, just like Candlestick. Of course, greatness has been in short supply in recent years for the 49ers, as the team has not posted a winning record since 2013. But even before the age of Jim Harbaugh and the bellowing cheers of who's got it better than us, the San Francisco 49ers were consistently at odds with greatness following the end of the golden era. That's of course where the story of Document 49 begins, with a franchise that was once the shining light of the NFL suddenly finding itself thrust into darkness. So I always refer to 2003 to 2011 as the decade of darkness because those 10, 11 years were the worst years in probably a 30 year stretch for the 49ers. And we have to remember that from 1983 to 1998, the Niners won 10 or more games. 
That's 16 consecutive seasons, which is absurd and ridiculous. I mean, this is Patriots level kind of dynasty. And I guess it would be more appropriate to say the Patriots are now a 49ers level dynasty. That was the world in which we were injected to when all of a sudden you've got Dennis Erickson and you've got Mike Nolan and Singletary. You just rolled your eyes every time you turned on a 49er game. It was not good. This transition from light to dark, from joy to pain, from winning to losing, wasn't an easy one for many 49er fans to accept. The San Francisco 49ers, under the ownership of Eddie DeBartolo, were professional football royalty for what seemed like an eternity. Losing was simply not a reality this fan base had experienced for almost 20 years of football at Candlestick Park. To be candid, Bay Area football fans had been spoiled by years of Super Bowl success, and leaving the golden era behind was no easy task for many of the faithful. You know, it was unfortunate what happened with Eddie and the team going to his sister and her husband and ultimately Jed. It's a tough transition, and I think when you compare it to when Eddie ran the team, from being the golden children of the NFL to being questionable, it was really hard for fans to accept, I think. You become so used to the team being good and being successful, and I think those early years especially were tough because you still haven't really gotten rid of that expectation, right, that they're going to be good and that this is the team that, yeah, it's the 49ers, like, why are they not competing? Because of poor personnel management and a slew of lucrative contracts given to older players, the Niners were forced to rebuild their roster by trading or releasing many talented veterans that could have otherwise contributed for additional seasons. This purge included seven offensive starters at the end of the 2003 season, including prominent names like Jeff Garcia, Terrell Owens, Garrison Hurst, and Derek Deese. San Francisco's checkbook was simply overdrafted, causing a great deal of frustration and confusion for many of the 49ers faithful. Watching Jerry Rice go to the Raiders was heartbreaking enough. But then I was like, oh, we still have T.O. But then Steve Young gets hurt, but we've got Jeff Garcia. But then all those guys just start leaving one by one. We'd had years of sustained success. And then all of a sudden, it's like our best player is like Julian Peterson on defense. It sucked as a fan because you're just used to being good all that time. And then all of a sudden, we're just crap. You go to this is like miserable Sundays, week after week after week. And it's just like, why am I doing this to myself? When you're a team that not only is bad, but continues to make just these awful decisions year after year after year, it's just tough. The general sentiment was all of the players that we love and all the players that we know are gone. I don't know who these players are. Why would I want to get to know them if they're just going to keep losing? You just see all of these good players leaving. And now this is a team that sucks and you don't fully understand why and you're just kind of angry and looking for somebody to blame, I think. It was just such a stark difference and I think it really shook the fan base down to its core at that time. I would just remember like, oh look, the Niners are on. Oh look, we're getting our butts kicked again. I mean, we were just getting blown out like week after week. I'd never been embarrassed to say I was a 49er fan until then. <laughs> and then when people would say, oh, who's your team? I'd be like, the 49ers. So... That was, uh, that was a real dark time. That, that sucked. This was the kind of franchise that the Niners had become from being the darlings of the NFL to being this franchise that no one wanted to be around. They were cheap. They wouldn't spend on free agents. They hired coaches because they were going to get paid less than $4 million a year. That was one of the leading criteria for getting coaches like Dennis Erickson and things like that. So it was not a good time. Those years were not good.
And the wait is officially over. After a search of just under two weeks, Ravens defensive coordinator Mike Nolan has indeed accepted a head coaching position with the San Francisco 49ers, this pending the completion of a contract. The son of former 49ers head coach Dick Nolan, the Niners' new coach brings 12 years of NFL experience to the franchise with previous stops as a defensive coordinator with the Giants, Jets, and Redskins. Nolan replaces Dennis Erickson, who was fired by co-owner John York after a franchise-tying worst 2-14 season. 49ers currently hold the top overall selection in the 2005 NFL Draft. Following the 2004 NFL season, the 49ers fired both head coach Dennis Erickson and general manager Terry Donahue after finishing with a record of only two wins and 14 losses, the worst regular season mark for the franchise since 1979. These departures made way for the Niners to begin rebuilding the organization from the ground up. With the hiring of former Baltimore Ravens defensive coordinator Mike Nolan as both head coach and acting general manager, and former Seattle Seahawks director of scouting Scott McLuhan as vice president of player personnel. Nolan's father, Dick Nolan, previously coached the 49ers from 1968 to 1975. I think there's three jobs in the NFL or teams, I should say, that, that really stand out the most, and that's New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. Having grown up with San Francisco and having the connection with that football team as a, as a kid growing up, as well as it being one of the most, I guess, best winning traditions in the NFL, uh, those two things were, uh, you know, were what drew me. Initially. Are you a realist or an optimist about this job? Nobody turns them around overnight. Uh, maybe not overnight. But I'm both. I'm a realist, but I'm also an optimist. Uh, that's why I do have people like Mike Singletary around me, because he's the eternal optimist. Uh, I'm realistic about it. I've been through uh, the transition before. Uh, like I said, at Baltimore, we cut all those people loose, had to start over with a group. Um, many teams have, have shown how, with free agency and the draft and all that, you can, you can get back on track fairly quickly. When the Niners hired Nolan, I was actually excited. He was the Ravens' defensive coordinator, and their defense was just killer. I thought, hey, we need some of that. Like, we need toughness. We need discipline. I remember Ray Lewis saying that he loved Mike Nolan and that we were getting a good coach, and he hated to see him leave. Because of the team's continuing struggles with the salary cap, Nolan and McLuhan were essentially starting from scratch. With a roster so desperately starved for talent that NBC Sports Bay Area's Matt Mayoko once referred to it as, quote, essentially an expansion team. So when you think of Mike Nolan, him being brought on was one of those optimistic kind of moments that buoy a franchise. It was a chance for a rebirth. It was a connection to the 49ers past and Dick Nolan. And those kinds of items are the little optimistic bits that fans will attach to. Indeed, Nolan and McLuhan were faced with a tall task, to overhaul a roster in desperate need of new playmakers. But armed with the first overall pick in the 2005 NFL Draft, the duo was prepared to immediately strengthen the 49ers with the selection of a new franchise quarterback. It all came down to one question. Alex or Aaron? Flashback to 2005, the Niners took Alex Smith first overall. <laughs> did, you, did you have a horse in the race? What was your reaction I, to I the I liked pick? Alex Smith. I, I liked him and I continue to like him. I think he's doing really well for Kansas City as well. Just kind of blew it on Alex Smith. He should have taken Aaron Rodgers because local kid, he had a great career at Cal. I could tell in the future he was going to be a better quarterback. With the uh, first selection in the 2005 NFL Draft, the San Francisco 49ers select Alex Smith, quarterback, Utah. 
It was a memorable morning in New York City today as the first three rounds of the 2005 NFL Draft now officially in the books. The San Francisco 49ers kicked off Saturday's annual event by selecting Utah quarterback Alex Smith with the first overall pick. Only 20 years old, the San Diego native led the Utes to two NCAA Bowl game championships and was also a finalist for the 2005 Heisman Trophy. Smith leaves Utah with a record of 21 wins and just one loss as a starter and is expected to compete with quarterback Tim Rattay in San Francisco for the starting position under new head coach Mike Nolan. Meanwhile, the biggest story of the day was the fate of Cal quarterback Aaron Rodgers, who was selected 24th overall by the Packers. Predicted by many experts to be taken in the top half of this year's draft, Rodgers instead waited over five hours this morning to hear his name called by NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue. Cameras from ESPN's live broadcast remained fixed on Rodgers throughout the day as the 22-year-old from Chico, California, waited in the event's green room until the Packers eventually came calling. Early reports indicate that Rodgers will play understudy to all-pro quarterback Brett Favre this season and potentially for many years to come. There's always this big debate on whether the 49ers, if they had drafted Aaron Rodgers instead of drafting Alex Smith, if they would have been in the same place or if they would have ended up having a Hall of Fame quarterback in Aaron Rodgers. You just never know. I think the offensive line was so bad at that point, it could have shaken anyone's confidence. Hindsight is 2020. You put those two players in opposite directions, it may be the exact opposite. Who knows? The system that Aaron came into was great. The system that Alex came into wasn't beneficial for him here. He wasn't set up with a good offensive line. He didn't have a lot of the tools here to be successful immediately, especially for a young quarterback. That draft pick was the albatross around Alex Smith's neck. I think because he was drafted first overall, that's always going to be a bit of dissonance in the mind of 49ers fans. Because if he were drafted in the second round, if he were drafted in the same position as Andy Dalton, I think the story on Alex Smith would be fundamentally different. I mean, he was the number one overall pick, so he's supposed to be like the savior. He's got this cannon arm and, you know, supposedly he's really intelligent. But the offensive line was bad and he had no help. And so to expect him by himself to just shoulder the load and then be like the next Joe Montana, which was a stigma that he was fighting as well, right? Because this is a franchise that was looking for the next Joe Montana, looking for the next Steve Young. Now it's Alex and you're the guy and you got to be those guys. Expectation drives everything. And for him, it was very high. As a number one pick, there's no way to get around that. You're expected to come in and change the franchise, right? And be that guy that lifts up a team that's been the worst in football and make them contenders again. And I think he came into a terrible situation, the roster at that time that was just one of the worst in the NFL. But I think there was at least a portion of the fan base that forgets truly how bad he was early on. Like we're talking about one of the worst quarterbacks of all time for a stretch there to begin his career. And he has such a unique and unusual career arc because most players that are that bad that early on don't turn it around. Alex Smith certainly struggled a great deal early in his career, throwing only one touchdown and 11 interceptions in his rookie season under offensive coordinator Mike McCarthy. Smith also missed five games that year due to a knee injury, thanks in part to a porous offensive line that surrendered 48 sacks on the season. While Smith's sophomore year under new offensive coordinator Norv Turner helped him improve under center, a severe shoulder injury sustained by Smith the following year generated waves of controversy throughout the organization. Alex Smith was a top-rated quarterback at high school and college, and he's been a superstar. The fact that he went through the troubles that he did with the Niners 
And then to have a head coach as blind as Nolan was to say, I didn't know he was injured. I was more saddened by that than anything else. When your subordinate coaches can't get through to the head coach that their star quarterback, their prized possession is injured. For Nolan to say something like, nobody told me he was injured in front of the press was a complete indictment of the Niners organization for failure to communicate. Adversity. The word alone is loaded with intrigue. It implies that there is a story to be told, a history of obstacles, a beginning, a middle, and an end. A man or a woman that faces adversity will usually suffer until they are provided with an opportunity to gain redemption. And once they obtain it, they become worthy of praise. Therefore, is adversity, by definition, necessary for progress? Or can we choose to improve without facing hardships? It's certainly not an easy question. But without adversity, the fruits of one's labor may not taste quite as sweet. Adversity The aforementioned shoulder injury sustained by Alex Smith occurred in week four of the 2007 season when Seahawks defensive tackle Rocky Bernard emerged unblocked through the 49ers offensive line and sacked Smith's blindside on the game's third play from scrimmage. Smith took the full force of the hit and landed on his throwing shoulder, with all of Bernard's massive 300-pound frame driving the young quarterback's arm into the turf. Smith was replaced that day by Trent Dilfer and missed the following three games with the initial diagnosis being a grade three separated shoulder. But upon his return to the field later that season, it quickly became clear that Smith was not fully healthy. And soon, communication began to break down between the team's quarterback, its head coach, and the organization's medical staff regarding Smith's health. There was no doubt that Smith was playing poorly during this time. Smith even stated to the San Jose Mercury that he indeed chose to try to play through the injury. However, it was later revealed by the Mercury's Dan Brown that Mike Nolan attempted to undermine Smith with his teammates by making an issue of the injury in the 49ers locker room, as if to suggest that Smith was creating false excuses for his poor play. Nolan and the organization also maintained that Smith was fully healthy in their ongoing discussions with the press. Smith's agent, CAA's Tom Condon, then blamed the 49ers for overworking Smith in the weight room, theoretically causing additional nerve damage to Smith's injured shoulder is good or he's supposed to be good no he's not good maybe he's good oh he's hurt now we have to watch Trent Dilfer maybe Trent Dilfer should have been our quarterback all along going to games like being in the stands like hearing fans trash Alex Smith I mean he was almost public enemy number one when the dust had settled in late December that season Smith ultimately made the decision to have surgery on his shoulder and was placed on injured reserve he would later undergo surgery a second time in November of 2008 and would not take another snap for the 49ers until week 7 of the 2009 season. In total, Smith would miss 31 games while he recovered from injury, leading many frustrated fans to prematurely label the former first overall pick a draft bust. This, despite Smith at one point having played less than two full seasons of NFL football in his first four seasons with the San Francisco 49ers. It's an unprecedented situation in the National Football League and an unbelievable story, one that today draws parallels to the recent struggles of Indianapolis Colts quarterback Andrew Luck, another first overall draft pick struggling to return from an injury to his throwing shoulder. 
we will explore more concerning Alex Smith's struggles to survive during the Mike Nolan era in later episodes of Document 49. I think Alex Smith suffers from something that lots of sports figures suffer from, and that's the penalty of hindsight. I think he suffers because Aaron Rodgers is a first ballot Hall of Famer, and he was the guy who went after Alex Smith, and yet he was the guy that was compared to Alex Smith when coming out. And I still think that people forget context when talking about Alex Smith and Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers was drafted in the 20s to basically a playoff team with a Hall of Fame quarterback and sat for three years. He got a university degree in quarterbacking and footballing in one of the most stable and best franchises in the NFL in Green Bay. Alex Smith got a coach that threw him under the bus for having a shoulder injury, had no weapons, no defense. I think that if the Niners were to have drafted Aaron Rodgers, I don't know that Aaron Rodgers becomes Aaron Rodgers. It was probably a good draft pick at the time, but you weren't going to find out till later if it actually would pan out. You know, the organization that he came into at the time was just down. And so, you know, Alex Smith didn't have a lot of great coaches around him and just there's a lot of turnover. So that kind of, you know, didn't help. So you can't expect that someone's going to just come in out of college and know everything, right? I mean, no one does. Every great quarterback, especially, has always either had a coach or a quarterback ahead of them that they can sort of mentor off of and will help guide them because everyone sort of bagged on Alex Smith. He went through so many coaching staff changes. Like, I don't know anybody would be that great doing that. And you see after he's been able to do well. If you think about any quarterback that's a good quarterback, would Aaron Rodgers be Aaron Rodgers if he wasn't behind Brett Favre? Like, probably not. Maybe Alex Smith was never as good coming out of college. Aaron Rodgers did have a lot of swagger that they didn't want. He was much more cocky, much more confident than Alex, who's kind of, you know, a more humble guy. But I think if you spend three years of your NFL career running for your life behind a completely porous line, it's going to change your whole mental outlook on the game. I mean, you look at a lot of different quarterbacks that have come out and been thrown into the fire and they end up not being who you thought they would be. I mean, if Alex Smith went and sat behind Brett Favre for three years and then got a chance to play, maybe he'd be an entirely different player. You just will never know. It's really easy to look back on a draft and be like, well, turns out Aaron Rodgers was better than Alex Smith. Now, we know that now, so therefore everybody must have been an idiot back then. I think it's kind (laughs) of bullshit to judge somebody in hindsight like that. In November of 2008, Matt Mayoko penned an article for the Santa Rosa Press-Democrat concerning Alex Smith's future with the 49ers following his second shoulder surgery. The headline read, quote, Alex Smith likely to have played his final game in a San Francisco uniform. Nevertheless, Smith persisted in San Francisco, ultimately finding redemption under the guidance of 49ers head coach Jim Harbaugh in 2011. I had a buddy who actually played for the 49ers at the time, and he would tell me some of the things that Alex did, so it wasn't preparation. So I always knew he had a lot of the preparation and the tools, right? It was just something on the field was going wrong, whether it was coaching or whether it was line. As we've seen, you know, Alex made a pretty good career out of himself. I think he had did what a lot of quarterbacks wish they could do, which was take a bad situation, a bad coaching situation, and build on that and grow from that and become a good quarterback. Alex Smith is a good quarterback. Credit to him because he managed to turn things around. There were even a little bit of signs of him kind of turning a corner in that final Singletary season. Started to kind of improve over the latter half of that year and then obviously continued that on to a much greater extent with Harbaugh. Finally, when the offensive line gets it together and they're good, he gets a concussion, Colin Kaepernick steps in, and then it becomes Colin's team. Alex Smith's chapter in the Niners' New Testament came to an end after the 49ers' 2012 season. His backup, University of Nevada's Colin Kaepernick, replaced Smith and kept the starting job for the remainder of the season, 
ultimately leading the 49ers to their first Super Bowl trip in 18 years. Smith was then traded to the Kansas City Chiefs for a second round draft pick after the season, finally ending his tenure with the franchise after eight years. He just got traded too soon, got dropped on the starting position, but I still like Kaepernick, you know, no lie. But the thing is, you know, Smith still had a couple good years under his belt. I know there was a huge kind of uproar when, you know, Kaepernick obviously took over and he was doing very well, so, you know, I can't say anything about that. For my personal taste, though, I've, I've always liked Alex Smith. Especially given their career arcs now, I think people, especially 49ers fans specifically, they think, oh, we should have drafted Aaron Rodgers and, oh, we should have kept Alex Smith. And I think both of those are hindsight-driven conclusions because if you put me back in 2012 and you offer me that trade for Alex Smith, I take it 100% of the time, every single time, and there is no question. With the way things ultimately crumbled with Kaepernick, I do think there's a portion of the 49ers fan base still that's like, we should have kept Alex. Like, look at what he's done since then. And even though I think that's a bit misguided, in my opinion, I don't know. He's an interesting guy. It's an interesting career. And it's been uh, kind of a roller coaster to see where he's gone. Alex Smith's career arc as an NFL quarterback remains a fascinating one, filled with numerous professional and personal challenges, many of which we'll explore in the future on Document 49. Yet as Smith now prepares for the latest chapter of his NFL story with the Washington Redskins, Many 49er fans here in Santa Clara still pine for the latter days of number 11 in red and gold, leading Jim Harbaugh's offense efficiently down the field with the cheers of the faithful and the cold winds of Candlestick Park at his back. A big shakeup in the front office for the 49ers today. Head coach Mike Nolan's gone. He's been fired following Sunday's 29-17 loss to the Giants. Nolan, in his fourth season with the franchise, leaves the Niners with a record of just 18 wins and 37 losses. The team made the announcement this afternoon following Nolan's Monday morning press conference in Santa Clara, where he'd been previously told his job was safe by 49ers owner Jed York. Known for his striking attire on game days with his custom-made suits and ties, Nolan's subpar record and clashes in the media with quarterback Alex Smith ultimately forced the 49ers to make a change. Assistant head coach Mike Singletary has been promoted to interim head coach and will coach the team the remainder of the 2008 season. 49er general manager Scott McLuhan also stated Singletary will be a candidate for the permanent job after the season. A 1998 Pro Football Hall of Fame inductee, Singletary played 12 years in the NFL at linebacker for the Bears, earning 10 trips to the Pro Bowl and also winning Super Bowl XX. It was a sudden change, but not an unexpected one. After three and a half tumultuous seasons with the team, Mike Nolan was fired as head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, released with one year still remaining on his $8.5 million contract. His final record of just 18 wins with 37 losses included zero wins on the East Coast. During Nolan's tenure, the 49ers had four offensive coordinators in as many years. Current Packers head coach Mike McCarthy, former Raiders and Chargers head coach Norv Turner, former 49ers quarterbacks coach Jim Hostler, and former Rams head coach Mike Martz. Hypothetically, had Nolan been able to retain either McCarthy or Turner, and had Alex Smith not injured his shoulder in just his third NFL season, it's very possible that the book of Nolan could have ended much differently. Because under Nolan's command as head coach and acting general manager, the 49ers roster improved immensely from 2005 to 2008. With the help of Vice President of Player Personnel Scott McLuhan, Nolan helped acquire a new crop of future 49ers legends, like running back Frank Gore, tight end Vernon Davis, linebacker Patrick Willis, offensive tackle Joe Staley, 
and defensive end Justin Smith. The front office also added quality role players in the draft, like outside linebacker Manny Lawson, fullback Michael Robinson, defensive end Ray McDonald, tight end Delaney Walker, cornerback Terrell Brown, and safety Deshaun Golson. Nolan and McLuhan also made a consistent effort to bring in high-quality talent via free agency, including players like Hall of Fame guard Larry Allen, pro bowlers like wide receiver Isaac Bruce and linebacker Takeo Spikes, effective cornerbacks in Nate Clements and Walt Harris, and an extremely reliable kicker in Joe Nedney. But despite helping repair the 49ers' expansion-like roster, many chapters in Mike Nolan's 49ers story were often filled with adversity and turmoil. In Week 10 of the 49ers' 2007 season, Nolan's father, former 49ers head coach Dick Nolan, passed away after battling Alzheimer's and prostate cancer at the age of 75. Nolan was then compelled to coach the team regardless in a Monday night football game in Seattle the following night. The contest was ugly, to say the least, as the 49ers were shut out 24 to nothing, with Alex Smith's injured shoulder appearing compromised on national television. In addition to clashing with Smith, Nolan had communication issues with other players on the roster as head coach, including running back Kevin Barlow, offensive tackle Jonas Jennings, and four different wide receivers, Brandon Lloyd, Antonio Bryant, Arnes Battle, and Josh Morgan. This per Kevin Lynch of the San Francisco Chronicle. During Nolan's time in command, the 49ers front office was also found guilty of tampering with Chicago Bears linebacker Lance Briggs in 2008 requiring the team to surrender a fifth-round pick as punishment by NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. And because of these conflicts and the 49ers' weak showing during the 2007 season, Nolan was also stripped of his personnel powers in the midst of his tenure by owners John and Denise York, with Scott McLuhan being promoted to general manager in early 2008. Under Mike Nolan's leadership, the San Francisco 49ers showed promise with their play on the field, but never consistency. Document 49 will take a closer look at the suit and tie coach in a future episode. Taking over for Mike Nolan, who could forget? What I think about when I look at this organization, I know that what is here, there is a lot of talent, a lot of good coaches. I'm excited about the opportunity. I'm excited about taking it to the next level. I'm excited about the people that I work with, Scott being one of them, Jed, and we met with the players this morning, talked to them briefly, and just let them know that I'm excited and very proud to be their head coach and that the expectation will be high. I expect to go to the next level, and so will they. The most prominent memory of Mike Singletary's era is when he and Vernon Davis got into their argument and subsequently Vernon Davis was held out of the game and sent to the locker room. Sunday, October 26, 2008. The San Francisco 49ers are playing host to the Seattle Seahawks on a Sunday afternoon at Candlestick Park. Starting under center for the red and gold is UC Davis's J.T. O'Sullivan. The team's answer at quarterback under new offensive coordinator Mike Marks, and pacing fiercely up and down the 49ers sideline in a buttoned-up red polo shirt and khaki pants is Mike Singletary, the 49ers interim head coach following the release of Mike Nolan earlier that week. The 49ers were struggling in nearly every phase of the game that afternoon, even with backup Seneca Wallace starting for the Seahawks. 
In what would be his final career start for the Niners, O'Sullivan would fumble twice and then respond by tossing a pick six to cornerback Josh Wilson to close out the first half. Down 20-3 entering the third quarter, JTO was benched in favor of Maryland's Sean Hill, but that was just the beginning of Singletary making his presence known in the 49ers locker room. Later in the third quarter, with the 49ers down 27-13, hot-headed tight end Vernon Davis would be flagged for an unnecessary roughness penalty, grabbing cornerback Brian Russell's helmet after catching a 7-yard pass from Hill. The action by Davis was undeniably intentional and occurred long after the play was ruled dead. I remember them cutting back to seeing Singletary yelling at Vernon Davis. I see Vernon take his helmet off in disgust, and Vernon was like one of our best players. And I'm like, why is he benching him? I just remember saying, oh, he's sending a message to the locker room. Of course, the rest is now preserved in YouTube history forever. Singletary immediately pulled Davis off the field, engaged in a heated discussion with his tight end on the sideline, and then benched him for the rest of the game, both figuratively and literally. Singletary would then instruct Davis to leave the playing field and return to the 49ers locker room, essentially ejecting one of his own players with still a quarter of football left to be played. This was, of course, just the beginning of Singletary's unconventional tenure as coach of the 49ers. Following the 34-13 loss to the Seahawks that afternoon, Singletary gave his enduring and unforgettable I Want Winner speech to the press. A powerful, sermon-like mission statement that still resonates with many pro football fans to this day. Uh, I want to say this. Uh, Number one is I apologize. Today was good for me. It was good for me because sometimes um, you take a step back and you look at it and you think, hey, you know what? I'm here. It's on. We're going to make it work. They're working hard. They're doing this. They're doing that. We're going to go out there and it's going to change right now. It will change. And I'm not trying to tell you something. It's going to change. It's not like that. Okay, but I want you to understand where I'm coming from. It will change. And it will change because they wanted to change, not, not because of me. It will change because they want to be champions. But right now, we got to figure out uh, the formula, our formula. Our formula is this. We go out, we hit people in the mouth, number one. Number two, we are not a charity. We cannot give them the game. That's number two. And number three is we execute from the very start of the game to the very end of the game. That did not happen. This was, of course, how the Mike Singletary era began in San Francisco. Not with a whimper, but with a punch in the mouth. We cannot make decisions that cost the team and then come off the sideline and it's nonchalant. No. You know what? This is how I believe, okay? I'm from the old school. I believe this. I would rather play with 10 people and just get penalized all the way until we got to do something else, rather than play with 11 when I know that right now that person is not sold out to be a part of this team. It is more about them than it is about the team. I cannot play with them, cannot win with them, cannot coach with them, can't do it. I want winners. I want people that want to win. It was an uncalculated, honest, and bold declaration by the former linebacker regarding his vision for the franchise going forward. And public reception to the speech, by both the media and fans alike, was almost universally positive at the time. I liked it. I thought, hey, you know what, we don't want any prima donnas on this team. We want guys that are team first, and they're not looking out for themselves. That changed Vernon fundamentally as a player, that you just saw a whole new attitude coming from him. 
But I just remember when Singletary did that, I was excited to have him on the team at that point. Yet just four days after his legendary monologue, Singletary's momentum hit a speed bump. According to Mike Jarecki of Arizona Extra Radio, the 49ers' new head coach had allegedly dropped his pants in front of his players in the 49ers' locker room at halftime during the loss to the Seahawks. Singletary later confirmed as much to Matt Mayoko of the Santa Rosa Press-Democrat, stating, quote, I used my pants to illustrate that we were getting our tails whipped on Sunday and how humiliating that should feel for all of us. I needed to do something to dramatize my point. There were other ways I could have done it, but I think this got the message across. It was just sharing my heart with him. It's as simple as that. And, but I, I just believe that things that we talk about in the locker room should stay there. Uh, and you, in, in all honesty, you probably do not want to hear it, okay? Never one for subtlety, the first week of the Singletary administration set the stage for an unpredictable and often chaotic two and a half seasons for the San Francisco 49ers. Four simple words. Pants on the ground. Also, we want winners. I don't know. Got to go watch the film. I think Jed thought that really good rah-rah guys would be leaders of men, and thus they would be great coaches. And that, to me, is what Mike Singletary was. He was a rah-rah guy. And what I remember the most about that hire is having a coach that was woefully inequipped for the job that he was hired for. After the Niners claimed victory in the final game of the 2008 season, Jed York was officially appointed 49ers team president. The son of team owners John and Denise York and nephew of former 49ers owner Eddie DeBartolo, Jed York's first act as president was to sign Mike Singletary to a four-year, $10 million contract. York publicly announced the decision in the 49ers locker room. This is the last time our season ends in December. And I'd like to introduce the new head coach of the San Francisco... Following the 2008 season, Jed York gave an in-depth interview to Hout Living Magazine. The article, which is still available online today, chronicled York's rise to power within the organization, with the young CEO sharing stories about getting his start in the team's equipment room and attempting to gain experience in nearly every facet of the franchise. One quote from York is particularly notable. Quote, what we are trying to do is win with class. This is what the 49ers have always stood for, and that's what we're trying to get back to. We want to get back to competing for a Super Bowl every year, to get the chance to be in the playoffs every season, and to have a first-class stadium that keeps us in the Bay Area for the next 40 to 50 years. When I look at the long-term management of the San Francisco 49ers, you know, it's really about winning with class. And it's about continuing to put on you know, a team that can compete for championships. When you watch the way my uncle managed the football team, it's how you're supposed to manage a professional football team. You establish your vision, you establish the goals that you expect people to achieve, and you put the best team around you, and you drive and motivate them to achieve those goals and to live up to your expectation of winning with class. All I got to say is this. In my life, there are three things that are extremely important. Number one is my faith. Number two is my family. Number three is the team. The Mike Singletary era in San Francisco is most remembered by 49er fans for its lackluster play on the field. After offensive coordinator Mike Marks was fired following the 2008 season, Singletary and general manager Scott McLuhan interviewed a slew of new candidates for the position, including some well-known names like Hugh Jackson, Scott Linehan, and Dan Reeves. The team eventually chose 61-year-old Jimmy Ray II, 
a long-tenured coaching veteran of the league, having spent time with 11 different NFL teams in various roles. Under Singletary's direction, Ray installed a conservative, run-first approach for the 49ers offense, which upon application could best be described as two yards and a cloud of dust. And Singletary, having never coordinated an offense or defense during his time in the NFL, rarely had answers for the team's play-calling woes. The thing I want to say to you is I am very thankful to be the 49ers head coach. Uh, we're working to get where we need to be. Obviously, we're not there yet. My job is to lead, to motivate, and prepare win football games. Did I lead yesterday? I think so. Did I motivate? I think so. Did I prepare? Did we prepare our players? Obviously not, as well as we should have, because they didn't execute as well as they could have. And that's on us. And that's on me. They were asking him in an interview about the team's struggles. And he said, well, the quarterback isn't the most important player on the field. And at that point, I knew this guy's out of touch. He was never a coordinator. Um, he was never an X's and O's guy. He brings in Jimmy Ray with this old smash mouth football philosophy. It's a passing league. Everybody knows it's a passing league, and you're just treating the quarterback position like an afterthought. As a head coach, I think you need a basic understanding of both organizations and how they work, and also X's and O's and how you're going to deploy that to your strategic advantage. And I don't think really Mike Singletary had both of those buttoned up at the point that he was a head coach. I think Michael Singletary is kind of in the same category as Jim Tom Sula, a fantastic position coach. Like Jim Tom Sula is a fantastic defensive line coach. I think it was a bigger job than either one of them thought it was going to be for them and much more difficult. But while the 49ers play on the field was often dull under Mike Singletary's watch, the team's affairs happening off it were anything but. For what seemed like every week during Singletary's tenure, a new story would emerge in the press revealing greater details about the inner workings of the 49ers front office, the coaching staff, or the team's roster. Some of these stories include, but are not limited to, the 49ers losing on the road in the final seconds of a Monday night football game against the Arizona Cardinals in 2008 due to Mike Martz not being able to see where the ball was spotted on the game's final play because of his position on the 49ers sideline. Former Rams head coach Scott Linehan turning down the 49ers offensive coordinator position in 2009 after two interviews, opting instead to take the same position with the Detroit Lions. Reports later surfaced that Linehan was not comfortable with Singletary's plan for the offense and the 49ers' lack of a franchise quarterback. The pursuit of Arizona Cardinals quarterback Kurt Warner in free agency, who was coming off a defeat in Super Bowl 43 to the Pittsburgh Steelers. The 49ers flew Warner out to the Bay Area on a private jet and picked him up from the airport in a limousine as a means to potentially lure him to the team. Warner spent a total of six hours at 49ers headquarters meeting with Singletary and team officials, only to return to Arizona and sign with the Cardinals the following morning. When the San Francisco thing came about, I told my agent, I'm not making a trip unless I'm open to the fact that I may go there. As you guys know, too, our faith is the most important thing. So that's what we went into it with the ideas. Where does God want us? That's where we're going to be. And very early in the process in San Francisco, as many good things that are out there and what they're building, and Coach Singletary had a great time with him. I told my wife 45 minutes into it, you know, that I just felt God say, you're supposed to be in Arizona. Michael Crabtree's rookie contract holdout, 
an epic media soap opera that lasted into week five of the 49ers 2009 season and featured NFL Network analyst Deion Sanders nearly committing a tampering violation on live television. Rapper MC Hammer, yes, that same MC Hammer, was also involved in helping Crabtree finally sign the deal that October. My whole approach was uh, let my agent handle all my business. You know, the 49ers came to us and we came to them and uh, everybody came to a, a reachable agreement. It's a lot of relief off my shoulders and uh, I can't wait to get in this locker room with my teammates, get under Coach Mike Singletary and uh, go out there and play on Sundays. Cornerback Dre Bly being forced to apologize to 49er fans at a Monday morning press conference for celebrating at midfield during his attempt to return a Matt Ryan interception for a touchdown, consequently fumbling the ball back to the Falcons in a 45-10 home loss. I'm going to be me. That's who I've been my whole life. That's who I was in college. I have fun. Dre's going to be Dre. I want to come to y'all, publicly apologize for yesterday. Uh, my comments, it was totally, totally inappropriate. The sudden disappearance of defensive tackle and 2008 first-round pick Kentuan Balmer from training camp in 2009, who was found two days later at his home by Daniel Brown of the San Jose Mercury News. Balmer was then traded to the Seahawks four days later. You know, I told Kentuan to be here this morning. He was not. For us, we're just going to move forward. And I'm not going to get into any details about what it is that he's doing or dealing with or whatever. I think you guys know where he lives or can find out, and you can ask him and I'll let him talk about it. The sudden retirement of running back Glenn Coffey, who cited God's will as the reason for leaving the game and told the local media that his heart, quote, wasn't in the right place. Glenn informed us this morning of his intent to uh, no longer play the game of football. Uh, I respect that. I appreciate it. Everything that he's done for the 49ers. I appreciate his honesty, and I appreciate him not coming out here going through the motions. The thing that we're trying to do at the 49ers, we're trying to find 53 men that love the game of football. That's what's going to help us get where we need to go. Yahoo Sports' Jason Cole penning a scathing article about the team to start the 2010 season following a 31-6 road loss to the Seattle Seahawks, with anonymous players claiming that Singletary and Ray were already losing the 49ers locker room. What's in that article, the thing that I always strive to do is deal with men. If a man has something to say, he's going to find a way to come and tell you. But I, I don't want to deal with a rap. And I, I don't want to spend my time trying to find out you know, who said this, who did that. The article is not factual, number one. Uh, number two, I don't want to spend my time trying to find the rap. In time, the smell will come. Singletary then appearing live on local television during KPIX's 49ers preview show during that same week. Only for Singletary to berate host Dennis O'Donnell that no one should, quote, base a man's entire career on a dadgum Yahoo commercial. Then comes the game, then comes the Yahoo article. What's the truth? What's the truth? Yes. Well, you know, Jimmy's been in the league 33 years. He's been a coordinator for, you know, longer than you've been doing this. How does a guy be a coordinator and be successful all those years and not be good at what he does? I mean, that doesn't even make sense to me. What was said in the Yahoo article, a session. Yeah, but don't base a man's entire career on a dead gum Yahoo well, commercial. That, that's the point I'm trying to make because, it, as I said. The point I'm trying to make is I don't even want to talk about the Yahoo deal. It really pisses me off now that I sit here and think about it. We just talked today 
and I had a press conference today. I don't want to talk about the Yahoo thing anymore. Let's talk about then Alex moving forward into the game Monday night. And he can see Alex what the- will be fine Monday night. Watch the game and you will see that Alex will be fine. I don't want to talk about time. I don't want to talk about clock. But I, I want to talk about New Orleans if you want to talk about that. But I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to me. I want to talk about New Orleans <laughs> if you want to talk about that. Okay, let's talk about uh, trying to stop Drew Brees. Uh, we will not try to stop Drew Brees. We will stop Drew Brees. Next question. <laughs> okay. Singletary then telling San Jose Mercury columnist Tim Kawakami that Jimmy Ray would be his offensive coordinator for the rest of the 2009 season, only for Ray to be fired the following day and replaced by quarterback's coach Mike Johnson. Uh, coach, 24 hours ago you said Jimmy Ray would be your offensive coordinator for the remainder of the season. What changed your mind? Well, after I got back uh, here, I went home. I said, you know what, I'm just going to go back and um, just look at the film. And so I came back here and basically spent the night here. Uh, looking at film, just kind of looked at the overall view, where we are, looking at where we need to go, and felt that I needed to make the change. And so that's really all it was. The now infamous We Want Car game, in which 49er fans at Candlestick Park chanted for Singletary to replace an ineffective Alex Smith with backup quarterback David Carr during a Sunday night football game against the Philadelphia Eagles. Singletary responded by nearly putting Carr in the game, only to be convinced otherwise by Frank Gore and Vernon Davis on the sideline. Smith remained in the game, and the Eagles still prevailed 27-24. David Carr actually started going on to the field. Did you make that move, or did Alex just say, I'm going in? I made that move. But why did Carr still go out on the field? Because I had not talked to David Carr yet. I had not talked to him after I told him he was going in. Um, I told David Carr, Know, go ahead and, and, and warm up, get ready to go. As I begin to have words with Alex, decided that it would be better to stay with him. During the conversation that, that I had with him, there were several players that came over. The coach, he's going to be okay. He, he, he's ready. He, he, he's good. The guys do believe in him. I mean, to me, that's really the bottom line. The guys do believe in him. And 49er CEO Jed York reportedly texting ESPN's Adam Schefter the following day telling Schefter, quote, we're going to win the division. The 49ers were 0-5 at the time, while the Cardinals led the division with a 3-2 record. Of course, the 49ers did not win the NFC West that season. This morning, your owner told ESPN that you would win the NFC West. Do you uh, concur with that? Do you, what do you feel about your owner saying that? I think it's great. That's why we do what we do. We started the season, that was our goal, to win the division. Uh, to get into the playoffs and have a chance to play for the big one. That is still our goal. Unfortunately, you know, we're having to deal with these things very early on. That could kill most teams, but it will not kill our team. Uh, it will only make us stronger. Singletary to me was like a breath of fresh air because here's this outspoken coach. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. He's from one of the best defenses in football history. I mean, what, it was his second year. He finished 8-8, eight and eight, and I'm like, oh, we're headed in the right direction. You know, I thought he was going to be a great coach, and he, obviously he was a good motivator, but it just didn't turn out that way in the end.
I think there was a feeling too of underachieving during Singletary area, right? Especially because you look at the win totals during that stage and it was seven wins, eight wins, six wins. And if I remember correctly, they seem to always kind of end on, like a, on a two game, three game win streak or something like that. It was a lot like Jim Tom Sula, honestly, like he could be a really good coach at a certain level. And that was Mike Singletary as a linebackers coach would be great. Mike Singletary as a life coach would sure. be great. He was somebody, though, that as a head coach was just completely out of his element. It was out of his skills and what he was kind of qualified to be able to do at a high level. And I think it showed in the way that things went for the organization during that time. Good afternoon, everybody. I think you all are aware that Mike Singletary has been dismissed as the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. I want to iterate my respect for Mike as an individual. I've learned a lot with Mike the last several years with him being at the San Francisco 49ers. Obviously, we had anticipations, uh, expectations of being a playoff caliber team this year. You know, whether we were a seven and nine division winner or not, didn't matter to me. I wanted to make sure that the San Francisco 49ers had an opportunity to compete for a Super Bowl, which I felt like we had every expectation to do that. When that was not realized, I wanted to make sure that we were setting ourselves up for the remainder of this season, but more importantly for next season. Singletary was fired after week 16 of the 2010 season. He finished with 18 wins and 22 losses over two and a half seasons as head coach of the 49ers. Defensive line coach Jim Tom Sula was then temporarily promoted to interim head coach for the team's final game that season, a 38-7 defeat of the Arizona Cardinals. What was the uh, disconnect that uh, Coach Singletary had that you saw in your professional opinion? I think he set expectations way too high, and when things didn't go the way he wanted them to, he wasn't sure how to respond. Going into 2010, there were high expectations. It was, you know, we we're going to be 16-0, and 0, then 19-0, and 0, and be Super Bowl champions. And you lose the first game, and it's like, okay, like everything that we talked about, like now we can't achieve any of the goals that we set. And he wasn't quite sure how to bring everything back. I watched him as the interim head coach take a guy like Mike Martz, who isn't necessarily the easiest offensive coordinator to work with, and he got Mike Martz to work within the system. And I think he just got too big at being a head coach where he was afraid to admit, and I don't know how to handle this situation, and, and I need some help. If you're going to try to hide your faults and you're going to try to cover them up, they're going to be exposed at some point. And I think that's what happened where Mike was, instead of opening up and broadening, he just kept getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And you can't perform as a professional athlete or in professional sports if you're like that. The number one indictment of Singletary as a coach is the 2011 San Francisco NFC Championship playing 49ers. That roster was not substantively different, and Jim Harbaugh was able to do that in a strike-shortened year. He did not have a full training camp. He did not have all of the things that you would normally grant a rookie head coach in order to be that successful, and yet he was. And I don't subscribe to the idea that a coach can single-handedly change a franchise around like that. I think that there needs to be talent on a roster in order for a coach to be able to have that kind of impact. Singletary couldn't do, with roughly the same roster, what Jim Harbaugh was able to do in a strike-shortened year. When Harbaugh came in, it was like you saw that there was a massive shift just in the team, and you're like, nothing's really changed except the coach, so obviously there's something there, right? Obviously, they turned things around so quickly once Harbaugh got there. I think a lot of fans felt like there was talent on the roster, and it just wasn't being maximized, right? And so once Harbaugh took over and replaced Singletary and then you see this immediate just huge improvement in year one 
I think that justified a lot of those feelings during the Singletary era. On the next episode of Document 49. I'm excited about the San Francisco 49ers. I accept this competitive challenge willingly. That passion and that fire and that energy, it's kind of the kick in the pants that the team needed at the time. When you don't expect to be good and you have this big personality coach come in and say, no, we can win, and then the team actually does it. Who's got it better than us? That just made it so much fun to be a Niner fan when we had been bad for so long. Going to three straight NFC Championship games, Jim Harbaugh was the most valuable person in football. It's the 49er way. It's the team, the team, the team. Frank Gore, Patrick Willis, Alex Smith. I was a real big Deshaun Goldston fan. Navarra Bowman, Joe Staley, I also really like. You potty and Anthony Davis. Anquan Bolin. Colin Kaepernick. He takes you to the championship and the Super Bowl. And that was a special time to be a Niner fan. I got one question. Tell him Do you think there's somebody in the organization who's saying these things? If somebody's got a good story to tell, you know, they want to put their name to it. Jay Glazer reported Jim Harbaugh was going to be out at the end of the year, irrespective of whether or not he won the Super Bowl. It just didn't seem worth it. We have one of the best coaches in the NFL right now. You need to figure out how to make it work. It was his success that got Levi Stadium built. It felt like a betrayal. When a coach takes you to the Super Bowl, whether you win or lose, it doesn't matter. He got you there. Balky ultimately influenced the decision for them to mutually part ways. It was a mutual parting of the ways. There were some issues that uh, we weren't going to come full circle on. I think Balky should have been you don't go for every player that has an injury that's supposed to be great or anything. Pragmarate was the source of many leaks during the Harbaugh era. Coach Harbaugh is about as competitive a person as I've ever met in my entire life. I don't think Jed York felt respected by Harbaugh. I compare him to the kid that gets the keys to the Ferrari for 16th birthday. We don't raise division championship banners. We don't raise NFC championship banners. We raise Super Bowl banners. Jed York coming into meetings with Harbaugh and Harbaugh saying this meeting's for men only. Jim was probably a pain in the neck to work with and he probably rubbed people the wrong way. He's an extreme personality. He wore on the players. Three straight NFC championships wasn't good enough and we're just gonna blow it all up. Time of my life. That was that, that song that's had the time of my life. Document 49. The rise, fall, and rebirth of the San Francisco 49ers. Thank you for listening to Document 49. This program is currently an independently financed and produced project. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show and donate to our Kickstarter. Without your support, there is no guarantee future production will continue. Simply visit document49.com to learn more about how you can help. Document 49 is written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Nicholas Sheldon. Oscar Aparicio, David Newman, and Jennifer Lee Chan appear courtesy of Niners Nation and Pro Football Focus. Abstract monologues written by Sam Klein and voiced by Gil Knight. Additional voiceover contributions performed by Kirby Bridges, Sam Farnsworth, Bobby Kesselman, Jordan Mason, and Nick Mora. The Jingle Bells Trap Remix is performed by Chris Hayes. Soldier is performed by Flurry and produced by Tommy Prophet from Flurry's latest album, Love and War, now available for purchase on iTunes or wherever digital music is sold.
another ring, no resting. Hardball, you got a question? Who's Got It Better is performed by Bailey. His latest album with Rich Rocca, The Definition of Explosive, is also available for purchase on iTunes or wherever digital music is sold. Document 49's soundtrack is performed by Syndrome and Jurich, both independent composers from Canada and Croatia, respectively. Whether you are a hip-hop or R&B artist looking for a new beat, or a creative in need of original music for a digital media project, the innovative and extraordinary sounds of Syndrome and Jurich will consistently surpass your expectations. All of these individuals contributed to Document 49 solely due to a shared interest in helping produce the program. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode, be sure to follow them and support their work. Links to their various websites and social media accounts can be found on document49.com. Just click Voices at the top of the screen. Thank you again for listening to Document 49. This program takes countless hours to produce, so your patience during the production process is appreciated. Follow the show on social media to stay updated on when the next episode will be available. Until next time, be well, take care, and go Niners. Thank you for listening to Document 49. For more, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast distributor. To support production of the program, find us on Kickstarter or visit document49.com. And for production and release updates, follow Document 49 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Hey, Niner fans! Need a 49er flag for your home, car, or tailgate party? Then check out Judy's Flag City based right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. For over 20 years, Judy's Flag City has served as the largest retailer of flags and banners in Northern California, with an endless selection of flags for every occasion. American flags, flags of the world in the 50 states, decorative flags and windsocks, and of course, flags featuring the San Francisco 49ers and the Giants, the Golden State Warriors, the Oakland A's, and yes, the Oakland Raiders too. Whether you're looking to decorate your yard, celebrate a holiday, or support the 49ers on Sundays, Judy's has got you covered. Just click over to judysflagcity.com to check out her selection. And right now, you can get 10% off your order by using the word DOCUMENT during checkout. Just type in DOCUMENT as your coupon code and you'll save 10% off of your entire purchase. So visit judysflagcity.com now to help show your pride for your country, or your San Francisco 49ers with a brand new flag. Or come visit the store in person right here in Belmont on the Northern California Peninsula. That's judysflagcity.com. Fly your flag proudly with Judy's. Suicide is not inevitable for anyone. Healing, hope, and help are happening every day. If you or someone you care about is feeling hopeless, displaying extreme mood swings, increasing the use of alcohol or drugs, or isolating from others, you or your loved one may be showing warning signs of suicide. But help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 for support. The Lifeline is available 24-7 across the United States and is free and confidential. 
To find out more about how you can take action to help someone in crisis, visit bethe12.com. That's be the number one to.com. Well, I mean, uh, I've been really impressed with uh, with Trent Balky. He uh, he is a smart guy. He is a hard, hard worker. And uh, there hadn't been too many days, maybe a couple, where I drive my car into the parking lot that uh, you know his car isn't already there. And uh, we're talking pretty early in the morning. Didn't know him before this process started. Been really impressed. Been leaning on him a lot. There's not a day that goes by that we don't talk uh, football. That we don't talk to. Uh, San Francisco 49ers. We don't think about uh, you know how we can improve our football team and our situation. So uh, you know, learning a lot from them.